welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Florence Williams is a winner of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and author of Nature Fix, How Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. A contributing editor at Outside Magazine, her writing has appeared in the New York Times and National Geographic. The most recent book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, is a raw and sometimes painful, but ultimately hopeful, look at life after divorce. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Florence. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Your book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, is deeply personal. It's got a lot of raw feelings in it about first relationships after divorce and the things that we're trying to do to help when heartbreak comes. I'm sure it hits home for a lot of people. Yes. What? Why make public such a personal story? Well, you know, I guess I, I'm used to writing in the first person. I've done it with all my books. This is my third book. And yes, this one is more personal, but I think that first person voice just comes easily to me. And, you know, I also think for me anyway, when I became heartbroken and was suffering so much, I found it helpful to talk about it. You know, I wanted to tell everyone what was going on because that way they could tell me what had happened to them. And it was kind of like in this, this in the interest of self-disclosure that I was able to find so much relief. I think when we're going through heartbreak, we have this tendency to feel like it's such a singular event and it's very lonely making. But in fact, a heartbreak is universal. And everyone goes through it sooner or later. And it's only by talking about it, I think, that we could learn that, you know, and, and sort of find that kind of genuine connection um, between us and our friends. Heartbreak hurts. And one of the little lines in your book, one sentence, falling in love puts a loaded gun to our heads. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, as humans, we are built for love we are built for attachment. It's how we survived. It's kind of our cellular super fuel as a hypersocial species. We are built for friendships, but we're also built for romantic attachments. And when we fall in love with someone, it's interesting, our brains change and they change in ways that make us more prone to the grief and suffering later on. Because one of the things I found out, and this is from studying prairie voles, when I went to a lab that was studying sort of prairie vole divorce, um, what researchers are finding out is that, in fact, these voles, when they, when they start mating and partnering up, and prairie voles are pair bonding animals, they produce more of the sort of cortisol making machinery in their brains. So that when their mate wanders off or leaves for a period of time, they kind of freak out. Those, those cortisol machines rev into gear. They release cortisol. Um, they stress out the prairie vole enough that the prairie vole 
wants to wait, is very lonely without their mate, wants to wait for their mate. And, and this is, of course, a great adapt adaptation strategy. Um, you don't want to necessarily wander off and find a new mate if, if your current mate has just like, you know, gone off for a couple of days. Of course, the problem is when your partner has left for good, then you've still got that stress machinery. It's pumping out tons of cortisol, other stress hormones. And the normal way that gets resolved is through the sort of the oxytocin of being with your partner when the partner returns. And when the partner doesn't return, you're in this kind of vacuum of, you know, there's no good hormones to sort of counteract the stress hormones. And, and that's, that's really why it hurts so much. That was the Vol experiment, which is a, it's a great section of the book. But you set out to experiment a bit on yourself, really. What was some of that like and what did you find out? Well, I found out that unfortunately, there is no instant cure for heartbreak. Um, you know, it's, uh, it does take a long time to get over it. And the statistics really bear this out as well. And I was kind of discouraged in some ways when I first started talking to researchers who study, you know, the sort of good health effects of being in, in a strong relationship. And then, of course, the, the bad ones when that relationship ends, that it takes about four years on average for people who have been in long relationships to sort of return to baseline from a health from a health standpoint, from a physical and mental health standpoint. So four years was a long time. Um, I was quite interested in trying to speed that up because I did find out that I was getting sick. You know, the stress was creating inflammation and that was creating metabolic disease for me, um, as it does actually for a lot of people um, suffering the end of a relationship. We do get sicker. In fact, people who are divorced um, have a 23% increased risk of early death. So there's a lot of motivation, I think, to try to get better. Um, and with me, as you say, I did try a bunch of things. Um, I had written this book, The Nature Fix. I really put a lot of stock into sort of finding calm and peace and recovery in the wilderness. So I embarked on a 30-day wilderness trip. That partly worked, but also was a little bit disappointing um, because I still ended up feeling very lonely and kind of stressed out, according to my um, blood analysis, which we were looking at as part of this book. So that was one of the experiments that we did. And my blood really didn't look any better. <laughs> my, my immune cells didn't really look any better after the wilderness trip. You know, and then I tried a bunch of different kinds of therapies. I tried, um, I tried psychedelics even. I tried, you know, jumping into new relationships. And, and that actually was helpful to me the science kind of indicates that that can be helpful, even though I think the conventional wisdom that you often hear is, you know, don't form a new relationship too soon. You're not ready. You need to heal first. You need to love yourself first, you know, and so on. Um, but the science actually doesn't bear that out. So uh, it's going to be different for everyone. And, and that's the other thing I learned. You know, it's like we all, I, I had this sort of basic formula that can apply to everyone, but the details are going to look really different. Right. And like you said, you went to nature looking for what you had seen in your previous book, The Nature Effects. I think you saw a lot of stuff there that you thought, oh, this will help me. And you just said it maybe did, maybe didn't. Right. I was trying to learn from other people who had experienced post-traumatic stress. 
I, I did accompany a group of women who'd been sex trafficked uh, into the wilderness, not because I was in any way, exp uh, you know, comparing my experience to theirs, but I, I was hoping that just, you know, watching the sort of resilience in this group, watching how nature could help them, um, I thought was just informative and instructive and, and also just really inspiring. There is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. And I think sometimes when we talk about trauma, we don't necessarily frame it in terms of the language of um, recovery and the language of actually expansion. So that was something I really learned, you know, that resilience is also kind of contagious and very inspiring. Uh, and sometimes I think when we're heartbroken, you know, we don't see that. We just, we just sort of feel the trauma and it feels very despairing. Um, the river trip itself was really important for me because I had spent a lot of time in the wilderness with my, my ex. And in fact, I met him when I was 18. And so suddenly at 50, you know, I find myself alone. I had never spent a night in the wilderness alone. I didn't really know how to be alone. And so I kind of forced myself to do it. You know, I wanted to be in the wilderness alone. I needed to literally learn how to paddle my own boat now. And I thought by sort of, you know, confronting this fear, um, you know, maybe I could get through it. And certainly I, I did receive many moments of peace and reflection. I learned to meditate better when I was in the wilderness alone. It was so quiet. I was in the canyons of southern Utah, some of the quietest places uh, in North America. And... You know, I, I think I think I did access some bravery. I accessed some self-reliance. But when you're a woman alone in the wilderness, or really anyone alone in the wilderness, you're going to be paying a lot of attention. Your body knows you're alone, that you're depending on yourself for survival. You can't really screw up. You can't, you know, step on a sharp object. You can't light the beach on fire. You can't tie your boat in badly at night and then be left without your supplies. You know, so you're sort of hypervigilant, which in fact replicates the state of stress that your body already metaphorically feels by being abandoned in love. Uh, so it kind of makes sense actually that my that my white my white white blood cells would still be like, actually, we're still a little bit stressed out here. Yes, because it's quite a difference between being alone in your living room and being alone in a canyon somewhere. Yeah, although it's interesting. I mean, when you're rejected in love, your immune system acts as though you are alone in the wilderness. It feels yeah, the same it, way. It feels, it feels like way. all it knows is you've been abandoned. You're more likely to get injured now. Let's put out some more inflammation. That's why the immune system changes. And so here I was actually sort of replicating the metaphor. <laughs> so it, it maybe wasn't the best idea. <laughs> and trauma. Traumas, I mean, I don't think the word trauma is something that we really associate with heartbreak, but it really is trauma, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I was reluctant to use that word. You know, I had spent time with veterans who have post-traumatic stress. I'd spent time with these sex workers. I was like, you know, this trauma is nothing compared to that trauma. But the actually, the, the people who work with those populations said to me, no, you know what? Trauma is also heartbreak. Heartbreak is also trauma. And it's because we are so kind of 
broken down and so torn down to our kind of emotional core our sense of identity has been um you know in some ways just just kind of smashed you know and and it, it creates this it can create this sense of real fear and real anxiety and inability to sort of functionally move through your life or move through your days um, because you're so upset and preoccupied and disoriented uh, and and that's trauma it, it like the, the definition is that you really are impaired in terms of your ability to sort of get through your day and and that was definitely the case for a while one of the people you talk to along the way is helen fisher a biological anthropologist and one of her her lines is almost nobody gets out of love alive yeah. and it's so true how much if you could break it down as a percentage, how much do you think time and, you know, self-reflection and all those things is part of the healing process for this? I think it's huge. Time is huge. Time is probably the biggest factor of all. But here's the thing. Some people don't recover very well from heartbreak. It takes them a lot longer. Some people never really recover from heartbreak. And they're the ones who are skewing the statistics in terms of, you know, increased uh, disease and increased uh, risk of early death. And so it's very important that we take heartbreak seriously. It's very important that we learn as many strategies as we can for speeding up that recovery timeline um, because our cells and our bodies are suffering. We don't want that increased risk of disease. We want to get through this in the best way we can. And it's not going to happen unless there's a lot of self-reflection, um, unless there's, I think, um, a sense of our own capacity to learn from this experience, to make meaning from it, to move on in a way that we actually feel like perhaps we're better people we're better able to access love. We can show up better for the people in our lives because of having experienced the suffering, um, having become more empathetic, having learned ourselves better, having learned to become more comfortable with big emotions, which is not something you know our cultures teach very well. There are a yes. lot of lessons in heartbreak, and I think that's the key. And speaking of the people in your life, uh, how did the people around you receive the book? Oh, super well in general. You know, I, I've i heard from, well, I've heard from a ton of strangers, you know, that they're oh, very- Of course, appreciative. Yes. And, um, and I mean, even, you know, my kids have been very, very supportive. They're both adults now. One just turned 18 not too long ago, so a new adult. I've asked them actually not to read the whole book because there are <laughs> things in there that you know, no one wants to read about their mother, I think, um, and things about their, you know, their parents' relationship. And, but they did read the sections of the book that they're in, and they couldn't have been more supportive. So that, that was really wonderful to, to see. And then a lot of my friends have, have said, wow, you know, I didn't know how much you were suffering, because you project this kind of, you know, um, competence and, you know, you're someone who, like all of us, I think is good at kind of putting on a mask and, you know, getting on with our lives and doing what, what we need to do. 
Um, so a lot of my friends were like, wow, I'm sorry <laughs> that I wasn't there for you more. I didn't know how much this hurt. Um, but of course, my closest, closest friends were the ones who really did know everything. And it's important to have people like that in your lives who you can really um, be your true self with. I think that's really important. Yeah, you really, really need that support structure to to lean on in times like this. You really do. That's how we feel less threatened. It's how we feel less lonely. You know, when loneliness researchers ask people, um, do you consider yourself lonely? One of the measures, one of the questions they ask is, how many people can you call in the middle of the night if you're having a crisis? How many people, you know, will pick you up on an abandoned highway at four in the morning to come rescue you? And sadly, the number has declined in recent years and in recent decades. People are lonelier now than they've probably ever been. Humans as a whole are lonelier than they've ever been in the history of the species. Uh, and, and we're seeing it just get worse now um, in these last few years. And I would hazard to guess that probably has a lot to do with the way we're not interacting with each other now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, certainly the pandemic has created a sense of isolation for a lot of people, increased, um, especially, uh, you know, teenagers are reporting the biggest increases in a sense of loneliness. And that is tragic. Um, you'd think with all the social media, you know, they they might feel more connected in some ways. But in fact, uh, social media is, if anything, making making people feel even lonelier. And at one point in your book, you get back to a, a symbol, which is a heron. And a, a, it's one of those things that resonates with a lot of people. I think the symbolism in nature, not just being out in nature, but what did that heron end up meaning for you? Yeah, the heron is interesting. I was, um, I have a friend who's a doctor, she's an MD, but she's also started to recognize that traditional medicine, conventional medicine, um, has some gaps, let's just say. And she started working with trauma survivors and actually um, um, torture survivors and refugees um, with meditation practice. And so she worked on me with with a particular meditation practice where I closed my eyes and you know we went sort of deep into this visualization where I had a pretty powerful vision of a great blue heron who is sort of my wise kind of animal guide and that surprised me i didn't know i had an animal guide <laughs> but you know this is just sort of a way i think of accessing the unconscious but but when we looked up the symbolism of the heron the heron is supposed to represent um, self-reliance and a sense of adventure and i thought you know that's totally right on that's what i need to access i need to sort of get back to the adventurous woman i once was and learn how to, you know, be on my own. And that brings us to the question again, that usually an interview would start with, but it's going to end with it, is how are you today? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I feel really good today. I feel like I'm doing really well. Um, I do feel like I'm very close to my friends. You know, I feel closer. I feel closer to the people in my life who I love. And I feel like I am better able to show up for them. I feel like I'm a better listener. I feel like I'm more empathetic. Um, and I've learned a lot about how to be in relationships, you know, not just romantic relationships, but, but how to really sort of show up for 
my community and hopefully hopefully for even my planet which is something i think we all need to access more the name of the book is heartbreak a personal and scientific journey and i want to thank florence for coming on and talking to us today thanks bill it's been a pleasure florence williams is an author based in washington dc her most recent book is called heartbreak a personal and scientific journey that's it for episode six thanks to producer sarah simpson and social media director alina simpson for their help this week our theme music and brand logo are by titan sound john sanfilippo make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and send them over to the podcast page at northernlatitudes.ca i'm bill alt find your way to northern latitudes <laughs>